0: Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is John Gregg, the longest serving Speaker of the House from the Democratic Party in Indiana history. John, we've been trying to get you on for quite a while. Mr. Jim Shella is joining us. You guys can have the first 58 minutes <laughs> and I'll ask the five questions at the end. John, thank a- you.
1: I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Robert. And I always tell people when I'm introduced as the longest-serving Democrat speaker in the history of the state, that's really more a testimony to being a Republican state than to my talent. I want to make that clear. I mean.
2: (laughs) Jim? Well, your tenure is significantly shorter than Brian Bosma's.
1: But I left voluntarily. I mean, (laughs) I left, and, you know, and I turned it over to Bauer. Now, he immediately lost it the next next election, uh, (laughs) but— Yeah, you know there. I can't believe Bosma stayed there thirty-two years. Oh my! I mean, that's he wasn't like,
2: speaker that long, but he he is the longest-serving uh, Republican, Republican speaker. Okay, let me, let me say a few more nice
0: things about Mister. Gregg. He was born in Linton in Greene County, Indiana.
1: In a hospital, or I'd have been born at Sandburn in Knox County.
0: (laughs) Sandburn didn't have the hospital? No, no. What about a barn?
1: We had a barn. Both parents were born at home. I guess we Uh, could have done that.
0: Ask that. Uh, He was minority leader from 94 to 96, and he was majority leader from 90 to 94. He's always been super kind to me. Even when I worked for Connie Noss, you were very nice to me. Those things usually don't go together. Greg was a precinct committeeman from 74 to 86. He was a delegate to the Democratic National Convention four times. And in 2008, I want to make sure I ask you about this or Jim will. You were an honorary chair of Hillary Clinton for president and accompanied former president Bill Clinton to events across Indiana. So when I want to talk about that two thousand eight oh, primary.
1: Absolutely great. I'm I'm obviously very talented. Every fifty years, a Democrat primary in Indiana comes into play, and I pick the wrong side. <laughs> <laughs> but I can tell you, I never had more fun. Hogsett and I traveled, um, Mayor Hogsett, pardon me, traveled <laughs> with Bill Clinton all across the state, and I mean, I never had so much fun with my clothes on in my life. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wait a second. President Bill
1: Clinton. President Bill Clinton. Clothes I mean, on? it was fun. It really was. <laughs> it, it was nothing but fun. He was a marvelous person, one on one or in a small group. It was. A, he it didn't was talk a to the press though. Well, he may not have. I don't know. No, and you she You know what? For somebody that gets the bum rap like she does, she's actually unbelievably um, enjoyable in in a small group. You know, I mean, the media. You know, when you see her on television. I mean, I'll be the first to admit she didn't come off warm and fuzzy, man. When you meet her, it's just totally different.
2: Okay, <laughs> I noticed yeah. that. With, I noticed I was a grudge. that. With,
1: with another Minnesotan, same thing. When I met Walter Mondale, you okay. probably were around Walter some.
2: I've you? actually met Walter Mondale. Uh, much like me, uh, Walter Mondale grew up in a small town in southern Minnesota. I knew you were both. He was son of a preacher. Um, yeah, he. Uh, I uh, had the opportunity to talk to him when he was vice president.
0: What about uh, Humphrey or was McCarthy from Minnesota too? Uh,
2: Eugene McCarthy was, no, he was from Minnesota. Was he? Yep. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hubert Humphrey uh, came and spoke to, I was going to say Indiana. I'm losing track of my Minnesota roots. I I went to Minnesota Boys State as a a junior in high school and Hubert Humphrey came and spoke to us there. So. There you go. Yeah, there you go. When, so,
0: when did you meet Speaker Greg the first time?
2: Oh, I met Speaker Greg uh, in the '80s, yeah, early '80s when, when he was a lobbying lobbying in the was, coal industry. I
1: lobbied before I became a legislator. I do everything backwards.
2: I. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, John and I were, were very well acquainted, uh, uh, used to see each other at the Indianapolis Press Club, uh, worked on the Gridiron together, um, and uh, have managed to remain uh, friendly uh, all this time, I would That's say. Right.
0: Was, it, was it weird to, or not weird, was it difficult to cover him during his two races for governor in 12 and 16?
2: Uh, no uh and what I what I've told people with regard to other po- I don't think you can do anything without making friends whatever your business is you 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 ha- you have to reach out and create relationships and be friends with people now the politicians and and, and the media have an adversary uh relationship uh, by definition but what I found was that when I was dealing with with a politician who was a friend, I felt like I could ask tougher questions, um, because they knew I wasn't just trying to gig them; that they were legitimate questions.
1: I think I think that's fair. I I um, always thought I got along fine with almost all the press. And, um, you know, now Abdul used to just really yank me off, but I know ne- like, uh, what's that guy, that crazy guy that's attorney general Rokita, um, <laughs> like him, um, I never considered Abdul real media, but, um, but I always enjoyed dealing
0: with, did the, you represent they, attorney they, uh, general Rokita in that lawsuit? No, no, <laughs> oh, I didn't.
1: Um, but, um, I don't really know him. I've met him a few times, but I wouldn't know Todd Rokita.
2: Tell me this, uh, just to to start things off a little bit. Did is my memory accurate? You you grew up a Republican?
1: No, that was Joe Hogsett. No, I didn't grow up a Republican. My mother was a Republican. My dad was a Democrat.
2: Okay. No, I, I was
1: not a Republican.
2: And, and but I, if I remember correctly, you told me that you you decided that your future was as a Democrat um, because of the the area where you lived.
1: You know, I was, I was a big Democrat young. I loved, um, loved LBJ. I remember that election. I remember Kennedy being assassinated, of course. Remember the 64 election. I was real excited about Jimmy Carter in 76, and I was a committeeman then, but I, with the inflation and Ronald Reagan coming along that um, that's of course a conservatism that doesn't exist anymore. That would have been the closest thing I might've had where I thought, well, do I belong here or not? And um, I was always had strong labor roots and dad had a unionized company. And so that was kind of uh, already laid out
2: there for me. So how about now the, the, I mean, what we've seen in this country is uh, the Republicans uh, have moved by and large farther to the right. Mm-hmm. The, the Democrats seem to be moving more to the left. And I know e- even though you you've been a Democrat your entire adult life, you've you've been a moderate Democrat. Yeah. Do you fit in the in the modern day Democratic Party?
1: Well, I do. Um there's just um there's just fewer of us. A lot of them, of course, have become Republican because of social issues or just the, just the pure liking of one of the candidates or disliking of another candidate, possibly. Um, I'm still strong, uh, strong labor. You don't hear Democrats talking about being a labor Democrat anymore, but I'm a big fan of organized labor public education, uh, environmental. But with that said, I am a capitalist. That was always the thing before. The progressives really weren't much on the capitalism. And now all they want to do is talk social issues. And I believe in equality and social justice. But I'd like to see us broaden that and talk about some other things on a national level.
2: You're from Sandburn. Mm-hmm. How big is Sandberg?
1: 350 people, and I'm related to about 341 of them.
2: <laughs> okay. And and the reason uh, it's still 350 people is because young people uh, go away to college, go away to find work, move move out. Sure. You, why haven't you ever moved out?
1: Oh, I thought you're <laughs> – you know what <laughs> – I, you, my wife always said this was the corniest thing she ever heard. I've seen the three prettiest sights in the world. I've seen the Great Wall of China. I've seen the Palace at Versailles. That's Versailles for those of you not familiar with the French pronunciation. And I've seen the caution light at the intersection of 67 and 59 at Sandburg. It's home. And, um, you know, I mean, I've told some people, boy, if I'd have known 45 years ago, I'd have been still making my living in Indianapolis. I'd have moved up here. But, you know, I've got less than a about about a couple hundred acres i live out in the river bottoms my mother's still alive i just can't imagine living anywhere else you know you walked in here and contrary to the republicans being the ag party you could tell i was in the process of selling selling cattle (laughs) so you know uh i like being out in the country
2: um why did you be you you started out as a lobbyist Mm -hmm. why become a politician
1: you know I always want to be in the legislature um i love american history and i really think that america is the way it is today because of our political system we have managed to grow to become a world power the world power in still many aspects and i think it was because of our political system and uh in part in more recent times even because our two politic two-party political system as opposed to more of a fractured system um i just thought that was the way to make a difference you know and uh, i don't regret it um I never really considered myself a politician. I always preferred being called a statesman. (laughs) Don't laugh. You're calling that. I don't know. Am I a leader or a legend? I didn't get elected, and I'm I'm not dead, so I don't know which category I fit in. But um, uh, I really couldn't imagine doing anything else. I mean, I will still have people come up to me and will say, you know, you helped me with this or that, uh, or my grandparents or parents, you know, and that's, that's a nice thing to know.
2: I think the the best story of your political career is the fact that you went from seat number 100 in the House of Representatives to seat number one, correct? That's right. Uh, Tell me how that happened.
1: Uh, It was uh, a dark and stormy night. (laughs) It was actually election night, 1990, November. And uh, the Democrats, we we were, if you remember, uh, we'd just gone through that 50-50 tide. Mike Phillips was speaker on... The odd days and Paul Manwiler on the even days or vice versa. I had one. In fact, I knew I had one because I didn't have an opponent. And I'm in Bloomfield, Indiana because uh, there was a vacant seat. A guy named Donald Dean had retired as a Republican. And Jerry Denbo, a Democrat, won the seat against a very popular sheriff from Greene County, Gene Gastineau. And I'm in Bloomfield in case it's close. You know, Phillips wants me there because I'm an attorney. We can start a recount process and all of this or that. Mm-hmm. And anyway, Denbo winning. I mean, there's not going to be any recount. And um, you didn't have cell phones, so I call in and tell it. And Diane Massariu, the queen, she says to me, whispering, she says, listen, Stan Jones is probably going to get beat tonight. And that means the majority leader's position ought to be open. Most people would have gotten together with their friends and said, which, which one should we put forward as... Majority leader. I was a step ahead of them. I decided I should be the one that was majority leader. And then I called my friend. So I came to Indianapolis, took up headquarters in the um, uh, Columbia Club at night, and uh, went over in room 336 and kept three phones going and uh, worked the phones to get elected and won in a four way race on the first ballot. It's very proud of. The only thing that I was more proud of was beating Pat Bauer when I became the minority leader.
0: Before we move on, can we just take an hour or two and talk about how beautiful and wonderful and amazing Diane Carter is.
1: Yeah, I made her mad one time because I ate her toast and she swore at me. She had this special bread that was made by some Catholic order out on the West Side. And every morning at seven o'clock, she'd eat this toast because she came in early and I came in at seven. I came in one morning, you know, toast is like popcorn. It has a smell that this side of heaven is just indescribable. And she walked out of my office where the toaster was, you know, there was that fake wall in the speaker's office, you push and the doors opened up. I saw that toast in there ladled with creamery butter and I took a bite and before you knew it I'd eaten the whole thing and I, I'm back to the conference table working and she comes in and saw it and she pointed her old curved arthritic finger at me and said John Gregan there were some initials and she said I couldn't swear I think it was S-O-B you ate my toast don't lie to me And she was mad but nobody is a better person than Diane what a treat the best yeah
2: Now a lobbyist uh, was on the the staff of the house Democrats for years. Yeah. Um, But uh, one of the the points that, that I was trying to make here by asking uh, you to do, tell that story is that you're ambitious. Yeah. I
1: mean, I want, if you were going to be there, you might as well be in charge. And I mean, um, I was honored to be there. Don't get me wrong. And um, I sit back there in the back two sessions, the second, or two two terms, the second one I got on, Ways and Means. And I mean, I did. I worked. We had a lot of new members, and I worked them. And we also had always a sizable contingency from Southern Indiana then. So new members and Southern Indiana Democrats gave you a majority.
2: And that was back in the days before the internet. There was no live coverage of the General Assembly. There weren't, weren't internet cameras, uh, so that people at home could watch. And you had a lot of fun in the back of the chamber with, uh, as I recall, some rubber bands, maybe some uh, clothespins. I
1: had a couple, two or three members reminded me that if they ever saw me shoot rubber bands, as you know, like if you were going to give the nightly newscast from one of those Romeo and Juliet balconies that hang out over, because we'd sit in the back and we'd shoot rubber bands up there. And then uh, Jerry Dimbo was the one that started the clothespin, but I may have clothespinned a person once or twice. So then after two terms, I'm in charge of enforcing the rules. So
2: that was uh, for for those who who may not be aware of the practice, they when somebody would get up to go address the body, they would they would attach a clothespin to the bottom of their jacket.
1: It was just, yeah, nothing significant about it. It was just, and of course it made some people just furious, but, uh, it was kind of harmless fun. That stuff couldn't go on today where you've got cameras on, you know, everybody, but, um, so then,
2: but you become speaker of the house and you, and you have to enforce the rules yet, uh, in the speaker's office. Uh, he, there were no TC Steele paintings. You had, you had had framed copies of dogs playing cards,
1: dogs play, poker playing dogs. Yeah, you know I'm glad you remember that because <laughs> I always wanted to remember people think you know. I mean, I love T.C. Steel paintings, but I could never afford one. So why should the taxpayers put one in my office there? I could afford poker playing dogs, and I had five of them up on the wall. And if you remember, do you remember the thing made out of shells? There were six humanoid-looking figures made out of little seashells sitting at a big seashell table playing poker. And— I found it at a garage sale for like a buck and a half and bought it, and I wrote on it to John and Sherry, congratulations on your marriage, Evan and Susan, and stuck that there. And people look at that and say, oh, I see Governor Mrs. By got you a nice wedding gift. <laughs> you know, It was a gag.
2: Nobody ever picked up on it. No, no. And, yeah. and they were supposed to think, that's not what Evan Biden Yeah. We, no. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How was your relationship with Evan Biden?
1: You know, I got along great with Evan. Um, I was in a couple of classes with him at IU. I'm uh, two years ahead of him, just a year older. And um, um, I, I probably, there'd be a lot of members. I got along with him better than probably any legislator, and I think he, a Democrat, and I think Evan would say the same thing. Um, I was more respectful than most mainly because i'd always been involved with politics and we had truly wondered like the hebrew people in the desert for almost damn near dang near 40 years and um i was always appreciative now do i wish he would have done this this and this but he brought us to the dance and you dance with the one who brought you and um you know um were there things i disagreed with yeah but i viewed him as the team captain and we tried to help him (laughs)
2: What do you remember most about being speaker what did you What did you accomplish
1: what i you don't know what I remember most is it wasn't fun, and I say that seriously
2: It's hurting um, cats
1: it's hurting cats, but it was um it's tough um I feel very bad for speaker Houston because I know he just went through his first was it full year or second year uh, second second I year mm-hmm. I mean it I'll tell you that first session, even though it's a long one I mean You just dread almost going out there because even though you've heard the dialogue and there's a book with it printed out, it takes you a while to get used to it. you got to get used to that machine. You never know who's going to jump up and make a point of order. And even though you've got a parliamentarian—and in the case I had, the same thing, Speaker Houston or Speaker Bosma for him— you've got the governor, and you have to kind of protect the governor, and sometimes that's easier said than done. Protecting somebody like Mitch Daniels that was a strong leader wasn't a problem. Protecting Evan really wasn't much of a problem. Governor O'Bannon, uh Governor Pence, and Governor Holcomb, uh, not meant as a criticism, maybe weren't in public as forceful leaders. So there would be people that might try to take advantage. And um, it was a lot of work. I mean, I'm glad I did it, but it was not fun at the time. Wasn't fun at all. And that's why when I decided, was thinking about running for governor, kid you not, I called Joe Kernan. I didn't, I couldn't call Governor Daniels. It would have been not fair. I did not want to call Evan because I knew I'd get more of a political answer called joe kernan and i said i'm thinking about running for governor i said i cannot tell you i liked being speaker i said i was honored to be speaker i'm glad i've done it did you like being governor and um i remember his answer what was it he said he liked a little bit of it he said that he um liked being able to deal with—he um, li- he liked getting to meet new people. He told me he spent more time fighting with Democrats than he did with Republicans, and I think anybody would—you you do fight more on your own team. I mean, you know, during two gubernatorial campaigns, I never had any crosswords with Mike Pence or Eric Holcomb. I mean, you know, I went to law school with one, knew the other for years, and they were always kind, but you spend most of your time fighting with your own party, and that's not fun.
2: Yeah, caucus is not fun.
1: Caucus was, caucus sucked. (laughs) Um, caucus was bad Uh, the people that talk in caucus should keep quiet and it's always the ones who have nothing to say that want to talk in a caucus and it's not fun because it gives people an opportunity just to blow off steam and and you got to do it sometimes I mean and I'm not saying I did listen to members but I would much rather have had a round table discussion than a caucus because they're feeding off each other
0: what's the most number of Democrats you had
1: 52 when I was the leader, we had 53 one
0: time. And Speaker Houston has 71?
1: Oh, I can't imagine. You know, when you have 52, we didn't have to worry about, not even my friend Craig Fryer, just that open heart surgery. Nobody would peel off because the numbers are too close. You got 71 people. I can't imagine what Brian or Speaker, Speaker Bosmer or Speaker Houston dealt with with that, you know.
2: That's too many. We asked We asked Speaker Bosmo Do you remember his answer, Jim? He said that the optimal number was, what, 58, maybe? I'd say
1: 57. I could, yeah. I could see
2: 58. Could yeah, in terms of how to manage a caucus. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because you have some people that literally, you're, you know, your vote on some stuff that's partisan, and there's some things that just won't sell in a certain area, and some people ought to be able to— to break and not always have to do something for the governor. It's normally something that the governor that the second floor wants. And the third floor is, oh, is nothing but Irish infantrymen in an Englishman's army. <laughs> so just remember that
2: <laughs> <laughs> the third floor being the legislature. Yes. 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 We're uh, expendable. <laughs> yes. Um, but you never lost your sense of humor. And one of the stories I love to tell uh, is, is I is, uh, was teamed up with Jim Hester as uh, my news photographer oh, wow, for 23 years. And Jim knew a little American sign language and, and uh, he taught you some of it uh, at one point. Um,
1: Boy, I don't remember that. Was it, it, it something with a little pizzazz
2: to it? it? It it was a phrase that most people, the shorthand on it is BS. Okay. And, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: i guess i do remember
2: let the uh, court reflect yeah. well
1: so the reflect so
2: there would be you up. know late nights late nights in the general assembly uh jim and i would be up on the the media balcony um uh, recording someone speaking and if they went on too long you would look up at us and and do a little sign language <laughs>
1: Well, those were those were fun things. Uh, And my last session or the last two, we were live on the Internet, but with no camera. And I'm sure that it's kind of like what they do with Congress. I'm sure that's changed the dynamics. Uh, I could probably tell you real quickly who loves to talk. I mean, um, you know, um, the legislature was fun. Uh, it was fun ha ha but it was fun serious it was enjoyable there was camaraderie among the members democrats and republicans there were differences but uh, i to tell you how much fun it was and the relationships you built i can't tell you how many times in two unsuccessful statewide candidate campaigns for governor i don't really say that cuz i got two republicans sitting in there that um you know i could <laughs> not or, counting or, me or, not or, or, say who's or, the other one or i could have been somebody <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I would go to a city and that former or that current Republican legislator, they weren't coming to the event, but they knew I was going to be there. And they showed up and would greet me, welcome me to their town. And that was nice. You know, it really was.
2: Well, so let's talk about running for governor. Uh, You ran against Mike Pence. Mm -hmm. um, 2012. 2012, and I want
1: to remind you, I could walk into a room of a hundred people and take great pride in knowing that fifty of them had not voted for him because he only got forty nine point seven. Yeah, right. He, they always say he got fifty. I had forty seven. If he can round up, I get. He really won by two points. I mean, uh, if we would the, have the had
2: closest, the closest race for governor in fifty years, sixty years, but yeah, so, yeah, yeah. 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 Do you, it, I, I've had people
0: that, tell me. That, All
1: we needed was 72 more hours and we'd have have
0: had several Democrats tell me now I used to work for Mike Pence. I didn't work for him in that election, but I was the head of his veteran affairs policy committee. But I have had several D's brag on you and said if we'd have had another three to four days, Greg would have won that. Do you, you know, think that's true? And yeah. why would that have been true? I'll tell you
1: why. First of all, we had the momentum and I, I don't mean any of this to speak ill of Vice President Pence because he's somebody that I have respect for the office and he and I have been friends. Um he really wasn't pushing anything other than, hey, if you like Mitch Daniels, me too. And, you know, keep the good thing going, good to great. Didn't really have any substantive programs. And that sounds great for the ads, but there were back then, there were people that thought and looked beyond the party labels. You'd had Dick Luger had been upset. So that tells you, you know, you've got some establishment Republicans out there. But the momentum was gaining for us. We did not have much money, but we had driven home the message he had never passed anything. He had never done anything in Congress. He was all about social issues. And on... Friday before the election on Tuesday, he kind of pulled a boner. They had hid him for the last six weeks. He was trying to just run the clock out, which you can't do in politics. Found that out in 16. (laughs) But um, Mike um, had a reporter literally was chasing him from Louisville down in the New Albany area. And I've seen the footage. He literally ran to the car and they were trying to block him from getting interviewed. And if that would have been shown up here, we would have had enough time to make that an issue and shown up here i think it would have really made people wonder um because we we were just gaining i mean you could sense it you could feel it you saw it in the crowds we didn't have any money we raised six million dollars mike had 15 or 16 i mean you know he had more people than a small central american country
2: did your did go ahead go ahead your ad campaign uh featured you on camera in every ad right except Mm -hmm. maybe the last one um the first ones did, yeah. I mean, and they were
1: they were same guy that had done hogs when he smelled the tennis shoes, same guy did my first ads. I mean, they were what some would consider hokey, but people still remember them.
2: <laughs> Somewhat humorous. Yeah, they were. Right. Um you know, if you had that race to run over again, would you have would you have taken a different approach? No,
1: I wouldn't have, because um we ran all serious substantive campaigns the second time around. Didn't make any difference. Um, no. And um, no, because I think the ads were so unique. It caught people and they had a message, but it was saying them a unique way. Uh, I, would, I would not have. What I would have done different, I'd have focused on raising money more. I felt like I needed to be out and be seen and visit people. That didn't mean anything. And I knew better. A Speaker of the House, I knew you had to have money. So the second time, I raised money.
0: You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest on the podcast is former Indiana Speaker of the House and two-time gubernatorial candidate, John Gregg. We are joined by our frequent co-host. Can I call you lovely and talented? Absolutely. Lovely and talented, Jim Shella. Speaker Gregg, is there a particular Hoosier leader and or legend you admire most?
1: Oh, wow. You know, I think we've been... um, We've literally in my lifetime been blessed with a lot of good uh, leaders. I used to uh, make the comment that um, Bob Orr was the nicest guy I never voted for. He always liked it when I would say that. But um, I guess I I've, I've, I've thought our governors were good. Um, I grew up knowing Matt Welsh because he was from Knox County and our state chair was from there. So I remember Governor Welsh as a young man and then as former governor. Um I thought Dr. Bowen, uh, whereas I did not support him because I'm a Democrat, but he was very, very popular. And it was interesting. He was so popular that Bob Orr was really under his shadow most of that time. And I will say something in defense of Mike Pence. Mitch Daniels was real, real popular. I mean, I got so tired of people uh, saying to me, well, we like you, but we want to vote for Mitch. It was always, hey, time out. Mitch isn't running again. But whoever, had I been fortunate enough to win that race, whoever would have followed Mitch Daniels, Daniels would have been governor with a small G. And I mean, Mike obviously became vice president, but he was still not considered one of Indiana's better governors, nor would I have been. And I have followed Mitch Daniels. Now, could I have followed Mike Pence? You know,
0: (laughs) a whole different story. Would you have Um, wanted to have been speaker when Mitch Daniels was governor? You know, I, I...
1: I would have done some things different. Um, and I'll quote from his speech in 2012 or 2013. I do think as an opposition person, you need to point out some differences, but you also need to support them when they're correct. And there were some things he tried doing, um, none of the union stuff I liked, mm-hmm. but there were some things he did on the toll road and some other things that the Democrats should have supported. I mean, it was just they just didn't do it because of politics. And that's wrong.
0: Well, I was communications director at the Indiana Republican Party and was sitting next to Chris Spangle on the Abdul show. Well, you were in the booth next to us. And I said on live air, I didn't lose my job, even though Murray Clark half laughed and half wanted to fire me. When I said if Pat Bauer says no anymore, he could have been my prom date. (laughs) <laughs> do you think the democrats should have worked in concert a little bit more and said hey look you know we think, didn't vote think- for you but let's let's move the state let's get it out of its rut
1: yeah i didn't i also want to say that i thought governor daniel was wrong to say it had been mismanaged for so long but that's that's history uh i do i think pat took pat was the pat's a friend but pat was the wrong leader at that time, you needed a leader who would try to do certain things to make it more appealing to Democrats, make it stronger in labor, make it stronger in spending money all over the state, or any number of things. Um, I think they should have cooperated a little bit more because some of them were moving the state forward. You saw that during Bill Clinton's time. You saw Tip O'Neill do it under Ronald Reagan. Uh, you saw Newt even do it under Bill Clinton. So you know, yeah, I think it was a missed opportunity. But Mitch was strong enough it happened anyway you know
0: when i was reading through your bio and i want to go back in history for just a little bit because you must be the i would say f- sixth to tenth uh, guest who's had this experience greg ballard being one of them what was it like to be at indiana university when they went 32 and 0 and won the national championship i say that because quinn buckner has agreed to come on the podcast
1: really mm-hmm. you know i got to meet quinn buckner when um i ran for governor the second time he i was over at the pacers and i saw him walking down the hall and i just mentioned to greg shingle and herb simon i've always wanted to meet quinn buckner he came in there and we had a nice chat. It was great. Um, you knew it was going to be a good season because if you remember the year before, they just, mm-hmm. Scotty May broke his collarbone or whatever. I never missed a home game. I, I still hear the song Philadelphia Freedom by Elton John. And I think of the 1976 undefeated champion. And they didn't call off classes the next day. I was in a class the next day that was a senior seminar, which had less than 20 people, very small at IU. And our professor came in and it says, I cannot cancel this class. We're going to have class. She lectured for about 30 minutes. Knock at the door. Her husband came in carrying pizzas and a, yeah. and a cooler. And I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs>
0: I've told too many people. <laughs> well, it was to, the 70s.
1: No, it was the 70s. But <laughs> uh, it was great. You know what? And I can remember being on campus. You'd see Kent Benson walking around. He'd speak to people. I can remember Quinn Buckner. I mean, I'd never met him. But they'd see you and they'd smile and wave. Now, Bobby Knight was an A-double-S. He wouldn't smile He'd act like you know you could stuck a flaxseed in his hind end; it would have hurt. But uh, he just wasn't pleasant at all. Lee Corso, on the other hand, he was the football coach, and he was kind of like the second coming, walking through campus. Hell, he'd have students following him. You know, I forgot; I can't swear on this.
0: <laughs> you 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 disguised it.
1: Okay,
2: I he'd bring you back to politics if it's okay. Oh, going back to that the twenty twelve race and how close it it was. It, the closeness of that race, is that what convinced you to run again?
1: You know, um, it's tough losing a race like that. And I never and I hope I've never been bitter or said anything unkind in a personal sense against um, Vice President Pence or Governor Holcomb. Um I couldn't shake the thought after it was over cuz I started thinking of things I'd done wrong and the first thing was I had not focused on raising money we came that close if I would have had 2 million more dollars we'd have been on television in other areas closer and I thought it would make a difference I could not shake that thought in 2013 2014 And uh, I kind of gone out and did some thank yous, you know, to some JJ dinners and stuff. Um, My dad was still alive, but he was sick. And, you know, he kept saying, you need to run again. Subsequently, dad passed away, but that wasn't it. It just, um, I just felt like, you know, I want to do this again. And if I get the chance to do it. Here's what I'm going to do, and here's what I'm going to do different, and I'm going to focus on raising money. The people in the party knew me, and uh, we had a great campaign the second time. I mean, I felt like we had the best possible campaign team, Tim Henderson, uh, Councilwoman Christian Jones. I mean, it was a great, it was a great campaign team. Uh, we had great consultants. We had money. We did everything right, but you're not guaranteed to win, and we
0: didn't. Tim Henderson's very talented. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, and you know what? I'll be candid. If I had to lose and I've told this to him, there's not a nicer guy in my book and I would not want to hurt him with Republicans saying this, but I like Eric Holcomb. I mean, it's not like I could be mad at him. I mean, we both want to do the same thing. We both want to be governor.
0: I had a conversation with a very high ranking member of the Pence administration here in Indiana about two weeks before the election. And I said, what's going to happen? And he said, if Trump wins by 10, Eric wins. If Trump doesn't win by 10, Eric loses. Is that how you saw it? We thought 12, we made it to 14.
1: (laughs) Uh, I mean, that's huge numbers to make up. We knew it all depended on how he was, but you got to remember.
2: And Trump won by 19. He
1: won by 19. Yeah. So, I mean, so we lost, um, we lost five points, um, We were in that race, and the moment the FBI director, Comey, who Trump gives the devil to, announced that they were going to look at Mrs. Clinton's um, computer again, 10 days before the election, I mean, Evan dropped overnight. It took a while for us to drop, but we were headed down, and it was just a question, will it level off before election day? And looking back on it, Um, It was probably best. You couldn't tell that, you know, the last two weeks, all the TV times bought as a candidate. It's fun because you are just going out meeting people. We were seeing great crowds and um, everything. You know, uh, I was a Democrat. I knew what was happening at the national level. I knew it could affect us. But it finally dawned on me the night before the election you know, <laughs> old pal, <laughs> this we were back at the farm, my wife and I, Lisa, and I just told her, I said, now we need to be prepared because I don't think tomorrow's going to be good. And I said, I'll deal with telling the children and my two brothers because they have to deal. I did not want to deal with my mother on this. <laughs> uh, not that she would have been mad or anything. I just, you know, and um, I knew I knew it. I knew at twenty till seven I was defeated. In fact, I called Eric. Pardon me. Called Governor Holcomb at seven o'clock sharp, congratulated him, and I can tell he's kind of dumbfounded. And I said, "Look, I won Vigo County by thirty-five hundred votes, and I should have won it by six. I won Sullivan County by twelve hundred, and I should have won it by two thousand. This is over for me." And I told him as I did then, I said, "You know, if I'm going to have to lose to somebody, I'd a lot rather have lost to you than the Susan
0: Brooks." oh i'm sure really i can't tell you all i, I want to know I all, to I, all i all talk- i wanted was david brooks to be the first first gentleman of indiana <laughs> yeah that would be fun but i mean Where'd you, you know, guys in law school together were you?
1: yeah you i mean susan? i was in law school with susan love susan brian Bosma and mike pence and me i think anybody would have said we would have all sought higher office i think most of them since they're an intelligent bunch Felt like I should have gone the furthest, but
2: (laughs) (laughs) I went I talked to Eric Holcomb the day before election day. He had he had just seen some polling numbers and he was very happy. Yeah. Yeah, And and he he also knew that his fate was tied to to Donald Trump. Trump.
0: Yeah. Yep. It was And then four years later in twenty twenty, Holcomb wins was it fifty nine, fifty seven percent? Fifty nine and
1: you know, I mean I, th- I think I got 47-something the first time. I mean, what would he get, 29?
0: And I don't know what we'll see in the U.S. Senate
1: race this time. I mean, I wouldn't think it would
0: be 40. Jim, why don't you take him through like, politics and the Democratic Party?
2: It probably wouldn't be fair for me to do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, Democrats are in bad shape at the moment. I, I, I think I did some stories – Back in uh, 1985 or 1986, about about how desperate circumstances were for the Indiana Democratic Party, and I don't think they're any better now than the, than they were then. But as you said, Evan Bay managed to 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 bring the Democrats out of the wilderness. Is is there reason for hope at this point?
1: Well, yes, you have to tell yourself, and I'm a Democrat, a proud Democrat. Um, You have to tell yourself in order to keep going as a candidate or as a party stalwart that it's going to get better. And I tell myself that, you know, with each day like this, where the Republicans control everything, we're one day closer to breaking that hold. I just don't know when it will be. Uh, We're seeing a realignment of the parties. When I left the legislature, we had 23 members from southern Indiana. Today, we've got four and one's from Bloomington. And, you know, that's not it's in southern Indiana, but it's not (laughs) southern Indiana. Uh, So you've had an alignment of the parties, uh, both parties, you know, stuff used to be if you talk jobs, you talk salaries, you talk money, that would get people's attention. You know, we're on this us versus them stuff right now. And that's got to play out. And I hope it plays out for the better of the country, of course.
2: Who is a better running mate, Vice Simpson or Christina Hale?
0: You know, know, let let the record reflect the um, hand gesture, more more sign language. More sign language.
1: (laughs) I will. They were they were both two different running mates, Um, and I had I Vi's been a friend and her husband Bill since the early '80s, and Vi had an knowledge of state government comparable to mine and in finances probably a little better um, Christina was new but she had that youthful exuberance uh, she had that youthful exuberance which comes along with it they were both uh, they were both fun to run with
2: Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, you you just sparked something in my brain that uh, I think we well we there's need a miracle. To, no, we need to, <laughs> we need you to tell the story about the time you were arrested in Russia.
1: Oh well, I was arrested with Bill McCarty. Long story <laughs> short, we were in Almaty out in the. Um, Area of Uzbekistan, which bordered up against Afghanistan, and the Soviets had invaded it.
2: You, you were know, there. Well, it led, you were there. Anderson
1: College. Anderson College Anderson sent College, a group of, students. group of students. Bill was an adjunct. They sent somebody that worked at the university. The, the full time professor, something happened, couldn't go. I get invited by McCarty at the last second to go because I had a passport. Boom, we're over there. We're over there for 24 days. And on about the 20th day, the last day we're in Almada, we were going to go see a ballet. Now, at that point in my life, I before I went to Russia, I'd only seen two ballets and it was the Nutcracker two times at IU. Mm. But they seemed to think we ought to see a ballet almost every day when we were in Russia. And I decided I'm not going to another ballet. Bill thought the same thing. So Bill and I and two students, we take off, which was a no-no. I mean, you traveled with a interest guide. You stayed at a hotel with just Americans. I mean, there was none of this wandering around. We go over to the train station. We're standing there at this train station. All of a sudden, this doctor Chivago Zhivago-like train came in with sandbags, armor plating, anti-aircraft guns, and soldiers armed out the wazoo. I mean, it looked like a Republican meeting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were that armed. Let the record show. And anyway, so this one girl pulls out her camera, click, 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 taking pictures. You don't take pictures in the Soviet Union. They're not fond of that. I mean, and we were taller than the Kyrgyz. Um, yeah, they were Kyrgyz. It was in um, Kyrgyzstan or however you pronounce it. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, appears Slavic people who are Russian. And I mean, these guys came up, they grabbed her camera and off, and off we went into a room. Where you didn't was, take pictures? When, I did not take a picture. I, the picture of me that you've heard about is me standing in front of the Kremlin, it's in my library at home, with a red shirt on, and I've got my jacket open, it says, better dead than red. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was harrowing, it was. I mean, I you didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, they weren't, you know, the country sure as heck wasn't going to worry about four idiots out in the middle of nowhere that had caused their own problem. And they kept us till about 11 o'clock that night, questioning us and let us go back to our hotel rooms. And the next morning we got up, we got on the plane to leave, to fly to, um, now what's called St. Petersburg, the plane door opened up and on came one of these guys. And I thought, they're coming to get us off. And they're gonna he he didn't. He came in, he walked through the plane, went out the back, and took off. And Bill always thought the reason why we got we didn't get in any serious trouble was that it would have gotten the guide and all the other people in trouble because they had let us wander around and nobody had stopped us. So, uh, but we were scared. I mean, I was, I thought, you know, I'm not going to make it home, you know, and I really didn't have much of a mini Russian joke. So I knew it was going to be tough.
2: <laughs> you wrote a book.
1: Yes. Sandburn of the state house also wrote a second one, but I'm not done anything with it yet.
2: you going to publish it. I don't know. I don't know. What's it about?
1: Well, it's I I mean my friend Jim Madison, Dr. James Madison says I ought to
2: historian at IU write
1: one, historian at IU, kind of the father of Indiana history. And he says if I write one I need to be candid. Not that I wouldn't be, but you know, if somebody was not up to par, you need to say it. And he goes, you know, if you don't like it, maybe you have it published after you're gone.
2: <laughs> so this this is also autobiographical.
1: Uh, yeah. If I finish it, I mean, it, okay. it's mainly, but I tell, I tell funny stories also in it about, you know, running for governor. I mean, running for governor was like being on a sabbatical. I mean, it was, it was work 24 four seven, but it was fun. I yeah. mean, I, think of it. I got to spend four years of my life, 11, 12, 15, 16, traveling around the state of Indiana. You know, the only way it'd have been better is if I'd have won.
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, I haven't written a book, myself but i did write a chapter in a a james madison book uh published by the historical society the governors of indiana there's one chapter on every governor and uh i wrote the mitch daniels chapter
1: no kidding i always thought there ought to be a guide ought to be a guide like to the birthplaces of people who ran for governor that didn't get
0: elected (laughs) Has, um, has, has governor daniels seen your chapter
2: I'm pretty sure I actually uh, – I mean, I I asked him some questions for input into it. it, it I mean, the book itself is written almost entirely by historians. Um, uh, Randall Shepard wrote two chapters, uh, and I was the only, only one who uh, – besides him who wasn't a historian because Daniels was in office at the time, and they needed a journalist because it wasn't history yet. Right.
0: May I ask you a question about 2008? What made you decide to back Hillary Clinton as opposed to Barack Obama? It seemed that there were a lot of people who were excited by Senator Obama's uh, candidacy and really kind of split the Democratic Party. And I know some of those feuds are still ongoing, but what made you choose Hillary over him?
1: Evan Bay asked me to. I mean, I was a fan of Evans. Evan had toyed with the idea, you know, in six and seven, running for president. And, of course, that never materialized and— Hogsett, as I recall, Hogsett had actually called and said, hey, listen, we got to help Hillary. And I, you know, I mean, you know, how I am I made some kind of comment like, "I'm, you know, count me out. I'm not doing that. And he says, look, you can either do it or I'm going to have Evan call you. And um, and I got the call from Evan wanting to know, is there a problem? And I said, no, you know, governor, I always call him governor. You know, there's 100 senators. Only 50 governors, remember that. Rome fell because it only had a Senate, by the way. Um, So, I mean, he asked me to, and um, I was a bi-loyalist in that sense. Uh, I liked President Clinton. I didn't have anything against uh, um, Senator Obama at the time, but uh, there was another race. Had that lasted 36 hours later in Indiana, we would have lost that. You could, you could sense it. Although Hoosiers were excited to see Bill and there was a lot of enthusiasm, that national momentum had yeah. caught up here. What, was it, what because, was it like? Well, because
2: when, go ahead. No, Hillary won the primary right. yeah, but by, she one, lost, by one percentage point. One
1: percent, and of course she lost in North Carolina.
2: Right, yeah. on the same day. Yeah, on the, Yeah, same day. What was it like? I mean,
0: this is, I mean, really sui generis, right? In your lifetime, there'd never been anything like that. No. I guess if you count 68, that would yeah. be it. But in your time here, Jim, as, oh. a, as a journalist, I mean, that just was, must have been a, a singular situation and in, in journalistic story and political rally.
2: Oh well, yes, and it was just one amazing event after another. I mean Absolutely. Bill Clinton did a did a rally late in the campaign at North Central High School. Yeah. That yeah. was pandemonium. Um and then you got Barack Obama on the American Legion Mall with what, forty thousand people. Yeah. Um if you'll remember, when one of the Things I hold on to from that, all these people are on the American Legion Mall waiting for Barack Obama, and he was he was late uh, in a significant way. It was because he was up at Asherwood uh, taping his closing uh, commercial uh, where they, they had created a, a stage that looked like the Oval Office.
0: Asherwood, which would be the estate of the Simons. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, um, when you look back, because a lot of people say they don't believe Indiana voted Democrat in 2008. I don't remember the number, but the number of times that President Obama, as candidate Obama and then nominee Obama, was in the state, and then you had both. I think Clinton, it was 49. I think 49, it was... and both Clintons would have added up probably to 30, 35. Um, that made a difference. I mean, oh, it yeah. did. It, you know, all kinds of people voted. Uh, they they were enthused. You know, I mean, it was it was, I mean, it was fun to travel with Bill Clinton. I mean, he was going in small places, and there were people showing up, Republicans as well as Democrats. Hoosiers wanted to see and hear an ex president, and he spoke. He he had the ability to talk to a whole crowd, and everybody connect with it. But I can remember in Huntington, Indiana. No, it's what's whatever's due west of there. It's not Huntington, whatever's due west. We had a governor from there, um, sitting in a locker room, and Bill Clinton was straddling a, um, a bench in this sweat smelled locker room with Hogsett and I and an aide, ton of Secret Service guys back. We're just talking, and we had ordered from a deli ordered ham sandwiches Well, you're in indiana it was ham salad (laughs) and i can still see bill clinton biting into this talking and he was lecturing or sharing something and that ham salad's falling out it's not getting on him but it's falling down on his napkin down below and i can i can still smell that locker room and taste that ham salad yeah a lot of fun a lot of fun
0: there's a great picture of you standing next to rex early You're in, is it Vincent? Vincent University. We're both Vincent
1: University grads.
0: I haven't seen the picture in years, but I just remember it what's it like to be rex early's friend
1: <laughs> well rex is uh mm. is that individual that is a character and that he has character and he is a character and i think that's about the highest uh compliment you can give someone he's enjoyable to be around he mixes with all people but he's also a person of integrity and ethics and uh honesty um think the world think the world of him and uh Wish him well,
2: and he's and, got a and he's got a a, a line for everything. Yes, yes, a memorable line for yeah. for everything.
1: I I remember not not
2: all of them original, but
1: no, but there's I can remember when Brian Howie had his twentieth or twenty fifth anniversary. Uh, I'm out of politics. I had not been a candidate for governor, and he had something over. Where's that place? The uh, Antelope Club. He had something yeah, over right. there. I walk into there, Brian Howey's there, and then all of a sudden starts filling up with people, and Rex and I are to tell stories. They introduce Rex first, so Rex is in the middle of something, and Russ Pulliam walks in behind, and he's behind him, and Rex stops and he goes, hey, he says, I got a move. He said, I'm not going to stand with my back to a Pulliam. Those people never did anything for me. Right in the <laughs> middle of the speech, I'm thinking,
0: whoa.
2: <laughs> he always told but, it, like it
0: like he meant it. But if Rex Early wins big if in 1996 96. when he runs for the nomination for governor he yeah. loses to Goldsmith who then Stephen Goldsmith then loses to Frank O'Bannon what would it have been like if Rex Early was governor and you were speaker
1: oh boy that would have been uh that would have been fun we might have traveled around the state together you know talking about Indiana we would have had differences but uh Um, They would have been political, never personal. I mean, that's one thing a lot of people miss, and I think stuff has turned too personal today. But, uh, you know, as I tell people, both Mike Pence and Eric Holcomb, they're not my enemies. They were my political opponent. I don't have anything against them. Our differences weren't personal. They were just politics. We
0: all wanted the same job. What are some of the other Republicans who you enjoyed, whose company you've enjoyed?
1: Well, Paul Manweiler was a was a good person to work with. He was speaker when I got elected and he was I also had the minority was minority leader when I was speaker, which was even more enjoyable. Um he was he was really delightful. Former state chair Mike McDaniel was always enjoyable. Um Always enjoyable to deal with. Um, you had a former sheriff here, Jack Cotty, who was kind of a character and a and a slice of life as far as a Republican that was uh you guys were in the house good. together. Correct? Yeah, we were in the house. I'll tell you somebody who was always nice to us when we go out to DC, there wasn't anybody ever treated us nicer than Danny Burton, of all people. But Cotty was,
0: and Burton were very close.
1: Yeah, they mm-hmm. were. Um, but but um, Danny Burton was always kind when we were out there. Um, Dick Luger, who I had never met, I, as Speaker of the House, make a call out to his office, and I get a call back like the next day from I'd recognize the name of I heard. Mar, was, was there been a Marty Oaks? Oaks?
2: No, no, no. it was Marty Morris. Mm-hmm
1: somebody that worked for Senator Luger.
2: he was his chief of staff
1: and okay, wanted to know if I'm, you know, this is John Gregg, the speaker. And I said, yeah. And I, he said, well, he said, we've got this funny message. I said, I've never heard, I've never met Dick Luger. I said, when he comes to my county, he's at a Republican fundraiser. I said, I can't go to a Republican fundraiser. I'd like to invite him next time he's in town, come to the state house and then come to our caucus. And um, they accepted He came and addressed the state house for about 15, 20 minutes. I recessed. We went to a caucus and I told two people, John Day (laughs) and Dennis Avery. I said, the man's United States Senator and he's coming here. I know you don't agree with anything he's done, but if you're going to talk or ask questions, just don't come to the caucus because I I, we wanted to hear him. And, you know, he came in, I called it to order, introduced him, they stood up and clapped. And he talked about foreign affairs for 20, 25 minutes. And it was just great. You know, what a man. I mean, and I never voted for him, you know, but he did this out of out of loyalty to the process. I guess I did vote for him in 2010, uh, 2006, because he didn't have an opponent.
0: <laughs> <laughs> One other year I want to mention before we get to the final five questions. We're here with former Indiana House Speaker, John Gregg, and our frequent co-host, Jim Shella. I'm going to need to pick up my notes here because I don't have my reading glasses on. 1996, you are speaker. The House is 50-50. Yeah. What was that like, given what we just talked about earlier, in terms of how many people you want to have in the caucus? Sure. And Jim, what was that like to cover?
2: Well, it was nothing like the first 50-50, I can tell you that. That was I mean, I still one of one of the memories that I'll hold on to forever is That's uh, 88, right? Yes. Oh, that's 88 to yeah, 88 the 90. Yes, uh an 88 election, the Indiana House comes up 50-50. 2 weeks after election day, they they meet for organization day as they always yeah. do. Uh they meet on Tuesday afternoon. Um they are Essentially in session, there are negotiations taking place off the floor, but they were in session until Thanksgiving morning on Thursday. Presiding Um, the Secretary of State, Evan Bai, who was governor elect. Yes. Um, But uh, that was, (laughs) I put in a lot of hours that week. Uh, I remember uh, writing a story after after daybreak on uh, Thanksgiving Day and getting it filed and uh, getting home so I could take a nap in order to have Thanksgiving dinner. Um, but it was uh, that, and that was just the beginning. I mean, there were battles for, for two years about who was controlling committees and who was, who, and, but it, it, it changed. It changed everything about yeah. the house of representatives. Cause they changed so many rules. Poll, giving-
1: yeah. You could call down your own bill. Now the speaker had to put it on the calendar. So, you know but it did change it and then when i was speaker and it was tied paul manweiler after trying an illegal and unethical reapportionment mid mid baker versus card decennial census he um, we
0: absolutely have to get speaker manweiler on the podcast paul
1: on that because paul you were wrong and you know it but anyway what what happened uh we had changed the rules so i got to appoint all the committee chairs and we had a majority on all the committees so it worked it brought legislation to the floor, but. You always had to have one Republican to pass anything. And we went down, we went into spatial session that night. I left that voting machine open and open and open on the third and final reading because the Senate had passed the budget. We're trying to get the concurrence. And I'm waiting for either Dan Stefan or Jerry Bales. And it was like, Lord, please, I just want to go home. And uh, it didn't happen. So at 50-50... Nothing
0: passed. But at 50-50... Why did you end up as Speaker? Because the Secretary of State was a D?
1: Governor. Secretary of State was a Republican, it was Sue Ann Gilroy. They had tied it to the and, highest honor. And elected not 90. Officials. Well, and. 90. This, this. You're 96. This is
2: 96. 96, forgive Good. me. Yeah. Yes. yes, Frank O'Bannon and beat Steve. Sue Ann Gilroy, Gilroy and when was. They, that's yeah. right. And when they had changed the rules in 88, that was one of the rules yeah. they changed.
1: it would be what, governor in the even or in the gubernatorial yeah. years and Secretary of State in the other ones. Because the Republicans thought there's no way Steve Goldsmith is going to lose to Frank O'Bannon, and he did.
0: Were you surprised? No. No,
1: I was surprised that I was, I was surprised we tied 50-50. And that was a, a tough time to get negotiated and get going. But no, I mean, people liked Evan by Frank O'Bannon was likable. It was kind of like Mitch handing it off to Mike Pence. I mean, you have got a real good governor. People are kind of happy and they kind of tend that way. And, um, and they, they liked Frank. You know, Frank was a likable guy and
0: Evan had been a good governor in the eyes of the public. So it just happened. One of the questions that and Jim, correct me if I get this wrong, but one of the questions you asked Speaker Bosman when we had him on the podcast a few months ago was, really, it said that the speaker is the second most powerful person, but the most powerful person when the legislature is in session. Did you feel that way?
1: Well, I know the stars always said that.
2: Um, it would apply only if you had a majority, certainly.
1: Yeah, and we had a majority the last two times. Um you know, for you to think that would have been hubris and the ancient gods struck down people filled with hubris. So
0: I did. I (laughs) promise not to ask Todd Houston that if he comes on the podcast, but I'm happy to ask, you you know,
1: um, um, I can't say that I did. I mean, I was aware of the power, uh, but you know, I was still just John Greg. I don't, I don't feel being speaker changed me. There might be people think it did. If it did, I apologize to them, but I'm still about the same now as I was when I got out of high school. I mean, uh, I think it's important you remember where you're from.
0: And- did you ever feel like, okay, you obviously don't understand whoever you is, how much power I have. Therefore, I'm going to have to demonstrate it to you by killing your bill or putting you on a committee you don't like or whatever. Did you ever feel like you had to, you had to every once in a while, just say you need an education.
1: There were times that you, you had to exercise the power, not so much because you wanted to, but because if you wouldn't, it could, cause an erosion or something, shall we say? I mean, I removed a Democrat uh, committee chairman of rules, a guy named Tom Alavizos, who's now a judge, in session from the rostrum. I just, you know, I, after I was reading, um, the chair announces that from this day forward, Representative Tom Alavizos, chairman of rules and legislative procedure, procedure is replaced by John Gregg D. Sanborn and then just went right on and you know be what what he he had done something bad and yeah <laughs> real bad and so had to remove him and I didn't like it because I liked him but
0: it had to happen you know Jim do you have a, just a couple more questions before we do the final 5
2: Well yes we're doing a podcast and you had a radio show for a long time um
1: that Mike Pence hired me for
2: interestingly enough yeah do you, did you do that for the for the joy of doing radio, or did you see it as a way to advance your political oh, career?
1: not at all political. I had fun. I mean, it was a hoot. It had nothing to do with politics, because I knew at some point I'd not run again, and I hit that point. And I stayed on the radio four or five years after that. Um, yeah. I remember
0: uh, seeing you on the street. Not being a street person you were just on the street and it was after the november 16 election and you and i talked for a few minutes and i asked you did the new did the vice president elect call you after election day
1: yeah my uh, vice president elect pence called me on thursday morning i had an apartment here right over there uh, as i'm pointing northeast from down northwest from downtown and um you know, it said on the screen, Mike Pence, and I thought, "This is somebody from his staff calling." And I said, "John Gregg," and he said, "John, Mike." You know, and I called him Mr. Vice President. We had a nice talk. He wanted to know how I was doing. knew it had been a tough campaign, and it had been up and down, and we had been ahead and behind, and everything. I mean, it was very gracious of him to to call. When he was a governor, he even invited me up to the office for a day. Um, I mean, not for the whole day, but invited me to come up and see him. And uh, he was always very kind, uh, very professional in that sense. And when he had his radio show and I was speaker, I always enjoyed being interviewed by Mike. He was never anything but nice. We didn't agree, but he was never anything but professional, nice, never personal, not like Jim.
0: (laughs) I was going to say, what's it like to step into the... uh... Into the pit with Jim Shella and Jim Hester, by the way, you know I love
1: I love Jim uh, and Jim Hester. I mean, I enjoyed the press corps. I mean, these guys knew what was going on, and what people don't realize today, there is no press corps anymore. Thus, there's no watchdog over there, and our system is better served if every citizen knows what's going on in that building, even if they think they don't need to know it, they're better served, and right now, it's just hard getting that word out to people
2: there's a, there's a press corps it's significantly smaller um and and i well it's about the size of the democrat party <laughs> there's something to that
0: <clears throat> boy that you just put something on the t for me that i'm not going to swing at okay
2: <laughs> <laughs> well the the only other thing we didn't touch on was your service as uh, interim president of Vincennes oh. university um i when you took that post did you have hopes that it would become permanent? I took the
1: job. Thank you for asking that. I took that job uh, with the understanding I could not be a candidate for president. And uh, the board that hired me um, had five things they wanted us to focus on. We literally had all five of them accomplished, four of them completely accomplished by the end of October. And I can remember it's the end of October, and I'm told that I'm going to have a dinner in this conference room off the president's office with the provost and a couple other people. I didn't think to ask what it was. This was before you had these things. I had one of those Sometimes, Blackberry? Yeah, Blackberry, something like that. I don't remember what it was. And I walk in there, and there's a couple of people in the university, a couple of our alumni, and a couple of board members. And they want me to know that they have decided that they have talked informally with the board, and um, they want to rescind that and me to consider being—put my name in to be president. And— uh, and they said, we don't want an answer now, because I would have told them no then. They said they want an answer in two weeks. Two weeks comes. I said, look, I'm fine for this. this is, you had some things that really need to be done. I could come in and do them. Didn't have to worry about where the bodies were and all of that stuff. I could do them. But um, I said, I'm not an academic, and I don't think long term I'm best for the university. I also realized that we were likely going to lose the governor's race. And I didn't know how a Republican board would feel to having somebody that was a democrat in there and the third thing was elvis elvis always knew when to leave i left the legislature and i've got seven or eight nice editorials about (laughs) with no disrespect to the late larry borst or bob garten they didn't get any when you when people say why did you leave as opposed to why don't you leave, it's a big difference. And I left the state house at the top of my game. I left VU at the top of my game. You always want them wanting more. And I left both times. And uh, I thought I'd come back for an encore, but that didn't always work
0: out. <laughs> We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Jim, do you want to ask them?
2: Sure. The first one is, what was your first job?
1: Uh, delivering newspapers.
2: What what newspaper?
1: Uh, the Bicknell Daily News, which was the first paper that the Pullian family ever owned in Indiana, according dying. to Russ.
2: Okay. And I know they later uh, owned the the Vincennes Sun commercial, yeah. mm-hmm. right? What was your first concert?
1: <laughs> oh, thank you. The Beatles, 1964 for my 10th birthday afternoon show at the State Fair.
2: Excellent. Uh, Can't be beat as an answer. That's right. Love me do. (laughs) (laughs) If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? One book.
1: Well, you know, you're always supposed to say the Bible, so I'll give the standard answer that most politicians do. And I'm somewhat – and I am serious in that it is a a great book whether you're a believer or not. I would say – Because I rarely, if ever, read fiction. So this goes against everything I'm going to say. But I would say either To Kill a Mockingbird or The Great Gatsby.
2: (laughs) I think those are two good choices. We should note
0: that the last time Speaker Greg went out of the country uh, for a vacation with his lovely wife and friends and whomever, I got the call saying, Robert. I need four or five books to read while I'm out of the country. (laughs) Give me some
2: titles. (laughs) A beach read, maybe? A beach read of some kind? (laughs) If you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose?
1: Mm, It would have had to been... um... One of two, and I know you asked for one. It'd either have to be when they debated the Declaration of Independence or the signing of the Constitution. One of those two, they would have both been great.
2: Independence Hall in Philadelphia. I stayed at a both hotel. Towns. I yeah. stayed at a hotel right across the street a couple of weeks ago. Very popular answer. Right? Yeah. And, it? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. then, I mean, so it would
1: have just been great. To and have it's been... still
2: a very popular tourist site.
1: I was just yeah. there last week. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Final question: If you could have dinner with anyone living today. Two hours off the record just to chat. Whom would you choose?
1: Oh, that's easy. You got to realize I'm the same age as you. It'd be Ronnie Howard.
2: <laughs> who is the same age
1: as us? Yeah, who's OP, who is Opie, who is an accomplished actor and a director. And he's just somebody I'd like to meet. He's you an know, interesting I, I guy. know I should have said Indira Gandhi or oh, something. He's an interesting but, guy. Uh, I know, he's, I know,
2: I know he's, he's got several kids, and they're all named after the place where they were conceived, yeah. correct?
0: Yeah. So he, he just a, put a book out with, the son, with his brother Clint. Have yeah. you seen that oh, book? Oh, no,
2: I didn't
1: know that. I'll buy you it. are the readingest one, son of a gun. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Your suggestions I always like. I have some people come up. We know you like to read. Here's a book. And I hate not reading it but boy you get some crap books
0: (laughs) well i appreciate the call this is an honor when i saw your name come up on my phone i'm like i don't think i did anything wrong but you never really know yeah it's like when shella would call me for an interview and i'm like god we must have screwed up shella's (laughs) calling me you have you have been listening to leaders and legends a podcast presented by veteran strategies a local veteran public relations enterprise And sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been former Indiana Speaker of the House, John Gregg, and we were joined by Jim Shella from Wish TV Emeritus, Thank you both so much. It's great to see the Been two of fun. you together. Been Thank you. Fun. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com.
2: This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.